Our scripture reading this morning is from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is the word of the Lord. Well, many of you have heard the news, probably this week, which came up for me in the New York Times headline, over 200,000 minors abused by clergy in France since 1950. This was a report that was carried out by a commission for the Roman Catholic Church in France, and it reports that about 216,000 minors, mostly boys ages 10 to 13, have been abused by clergy members in France since 1950. The article goes on to say that all of this makes the Roman Catholic Church, with the exception of family and friendship circles, the environment in which the prevalence of sexual violence is by far the highest. It reported that one spokesperson responded this way, You are a disgrace to humanity, he said in his address to the Roman Catholic officials in the room. And of course, we know that this is not just Roman Catholics. We've become well aware of this in our own nation. Across denominational lines that the church, the church, has abused its power in horrific ways. And has become a place of abuse. Led by its own leaders. Priests, ministers, elders. Our passage today opens with Paul's instructions to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I, I can't help but read Paul's instructions here in light of the disorder of our church, the church globally, the disorder of our culture at large and in our time, the chaos that remains to be put into order, to use Paul's words. You see, the Roman island of Crete was no safe haven either, but had its own reputation for disorder. We know of the Roman world generally for its sex abuses and scandals, prevalence of prostitution and something called pederasty, the abuse of young boys in particular. These were stark realities in Roman Crete, which had an especially grave reputation, as we'll find out in weeks to come. And the church, Paul says, was to create order out of this chaos, to put into order what remained, not to be part of the chaos. God help us, your church. And one of the central ways this order was to be created was, as Paul says here, to appoint elders, or what can literally be translated to ordain elders in a way that's formal setting aside particular, tested, qualified men to be appointed or ordained to a particular role in providing leadership or oversight 
in Christ's church. Now, obviously, in a time when church leaders are failing miserably all over the place, misusing and abusing power and falling hard, a, a disgrace to humanity in many ways, in many contexts and respects, as was pointed out. It's natural, it's natural for us, I'd suggest, to be skeptical about all of this regarding ordination of elders, the appointment of elders. What? We're to appoint elders, leaders, bishops, priests to lead the church? Why? So they can abuse children, misuse power, oppress, serve themselves? Well, if that's you, if that's your concern this morning as you hear a passage like this, well, our, our passage would say with you, it should be. That should be our concern because this too is Christ's concern and the concern of the Apostle Paul here. Namely, that the church of Jesus Christ would be well led, protected, ordered by qualified, tested leaders, not hasty to appoint them. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Timothy, no recent converts allowed, he says there, but only, as we'll soon consider, those who have lived exemplary lives for those to see, tested lives. Here, the spiritual and the moral cannot be pulled apart. The immensely gifted man who says he loves Jesus and shows many signs of spiritual life, but whose life is not ethically and socially exemplary, has no place, we find, no place giving leadership in Christ's church. We'll, we'll talk about this. But first, I want us to notice that ordaining or appointing qualified leadership in or over the church was Christ's strategy from the beginning. Let's notice this. That Jesus himself, we know, commissioned particular men. That, that's what apostle means. It means sent out ones. Ones, ones who are qualified uh, and attested by Christ himself, men whom he himself had spent time with, approved, called, and sent to go and to build his church. And one of the responsibilities of these men, called apostles, again, sent out ones, was then to go and appoint other men, marked by the character and faithfulness of Christ himself over the church of God. This is the New Testament model for the church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Elders now were to be appointed in every place on this foundation, in every place where the church is gathered. Notice too that Paul doesn't say appoint a bishop or a pastor or elder over every church, but to appoint elders, plural, over every church. These elders are to together Govern, oversee, shepherd the life of the church. Plural leadership, and thus assume this great responsibility. And of course, as we know, with this great responsibility comes a certain amount of power, great power in many respects. And so all the risk of abusing power. But here's the thing. Paul knows this. It seems he's acutely aware of this which is why he immediately emphasizes the qualifications of an elder, the qualifications to be a leader in Christ's church. And what does it take then to be an elder, to be a leader, a bishop uh, is one of the words that's used here, episkopos. What does it mean to be an overseer in Christ's church? Well, one thing we'll notice 
in this passage, and again elsewhere in the New Testament where it talks about the qualifications of an elder, is that an elder is qualified almost entirely based on his character. Okay? Other things also, but what we'll see in this passage specifically is that the qualifications of an elder are almost entirely based on having Christ-like character. That actually our passage has nothing to say about the elder's leadership gifting or charisma or financial success or political prowess or power, but rather the central questions are, is he committed to his wife? And what are his children like? Is he above reproach, blameless before the eyes of a watching world? Is he hospitable, disciplined, etc.? We'll take the rest of our time now to consider these qualifications in turn. And we'll do this under two main headings. First, the elder's conduct in the domestic sphere, so his relation to his own household. And then second, the elder's conduct in the personal sphere, what we'll call the personal sphere, in terms of praiseworthy and observable character. So first, we find that the elder is to be blameless in the domestic sphere. The term blameless here, that's often translated above reproach, means this most basically, that there are no grounds for an accusation of civic or domestic impropriety. In other words, if you're going to be an elder, giving oversight in Christchurch, your public reputation must be, by and large, undisputed. As Paul puts it here in his instructions to Titus, appoint elders in every town if, and here are, here's where he begins to list the qualifications, if anyone is above reproach, and then he continues the husband of one wife, or literally what could be translated, a one-woman man. You see, Paul doesn't care how holy you think you are or how successful you are in a particular area of your life. If you have more than one woman in your life as a married man, in other words, if you're not living faithfully to your wife as a man, you stand disqualified as an elder. This includes what you do with your body, but not, old, but not only your body. It includes what you do with your eyes and with your speech. It includes how you engage with other women as a man. Are you living as a one-woman man? Next, Paul goes on to another qualification. He says, the elder is the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, if you're like me, this strikes you as a surprising thing for Paul to say. How can Paul demand that an elder's children be faithful, Christians, believers? Isn't this the personal choice of each child? Isn't this something that's up to God, not to the parent? Do parents really have control over the faithfulness of their kids? Or is that more up in the air than we like to admit? Well, first of all, Consider the time and place in which Paul is writing. If, if, the, if a set of Roman parents worship Zeus, guess who the kids will worship? If the Jewish parents worship Yahweh, guess who the kids worship? And if the parents worship Jesus, guess who the kids will worship? Part of the trouble here, I'd suggest, is that we've come to understand culture and religion in highly individualistic ways. Whereas then... A child was who they were, not based on their individual and inner feelings and proclivities, but based on whose they were. 
right? the family culture that they were part of and in which they were formed. Now, of course, at a certain point, children do have to make decisions for themselves. That was true then and it's true now. They need to choose whether they'll follow in the religion and the ways of their parents or set out on a different course at a certain point. But the assumption of the ancient people of Israel and what we find generally in the New Testament among the people of God in the New Testament in the church is that God's promises are given to you and to your children, is the language, to the whole household. Which is to say that there is a general expectation that for those who walk in covenant faithfulness, so too will their children at least as long as they're within the household. Um, the proverb is, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, of course we can find exceptions to this. We probably all know people who are committed Christians, yet whose children have departed from the faith. Maybe you're listening and that's you. And you have your own challenges and, and difficult story that you're working through. Um, perhaps... Uh, we know people whose children, even from quite early on, before leaving the house of their parents, uh, have departed from the faith. And ultimately, we cannot control these things. That's, that's true. But still, I think Paul's more basic point is this. That our children's faithfulness and character, generally and substantially, indicates something of who we are. Or we might put it this way. That our children are who they are in large part because we are who we are. And this, well, this is a stern warning uh, for all of us who are parents. And to anyone who would be an elder, specifically. That you have a basic commitment to bring up your children in the ways of the Lord. And to fail there, okay, to, to fail there is to demonstrate a real failing in Christian faithfulness. Who your children are are a reflection, Paul indicates, of your own Christian faithfulness. Now, again, I, I need to be clear that it's important to add to this that all of this is covered by grace. For, for those listening, plagued by a guilty conscience, know that the Lord is kind and merciful. It may, be, it may well be that you've done your best to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and still they've walked away. And if that's you, may the Lord comfort and strengthen you and answer your prayers, even with tears. And for those whose children are walking with the Lord, it's important to recognize this too as God's sheer and unmerited kindness. That when our children turn out much better than they should have been for having spent time with, with broken parents like us, like you and me, we give thanks to God. He's kind. He's faithful in all his ways. Now, uh, to move a little more quickly. Uh, first, we've seen that the elder is to be blameless in the domestic sphere. And secondly, we'll consider, again briefly, that the elder is to be blameless in the personal sphere, likewise, in terms of his own character. We find in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. The elder can't be arrogant, we find here. Uh, other translations of this word might be self-willed or overbearing. One commentator describes this trait as a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in the effort to satisfy oneself. In other words, if the community around you discerns, experiences this kind of arrogance in you, 
you are disqualified from leadership in Christ Church, Paul says, from, from being an elder, an overseer in Christ Church. And nor can the elder be quick-tempered, he goes on. Can't be a drunkard or violence. Um, violent. This, this latter word carries a sense of bullying. Okay, such a person is unfit for ministry. We, we know people like this. Uh, you know people like this. Right? When you think of them, these words come to mind. Arrogant. Overbearing. A bully. Easily angered. They may be very spiritual people in many respects. But Paul says, when it comes to being an elder, appointed, ordained an elder in Christ church, that doesn't matter. That's not what qualifies a person being very spiritual, because the test of true spiritual maturity, it turns out, is not a matter of spiritual giftedness, or spiritual gifts, specifically tongues, prophecy, uh, sp time spent in worship, or time spent in the Word, but rather, we find here, character. Character that corresponds with godliness. And so Paul continues that the elder must be also hospitable. Uh, the word here is philozenos, right? uh, a lover of the stranger. You can think of the word xenophobia, right? the dislike of people from other, other countries. Um, uh, the elder has to be hospitable uh, in a way that he's a lover of the stranger. Right? This, this is um, not just hospitality in terms of having people over who are like you and who are easy for you. But this is a hospitality marked by love for the stranger, love for the other, love for people who are not like us. Uh, he goes on, the elder must be a lover of good, which stands in contrast to self-love. He's got to be self-controlled, disciplined, prudent, sober and modest, are words that are associated with this sense of self-controlled. He's got to be upright. As one commentator puts it, the term here focuses on behavior that is just, fair, and inherently honest in dealing with people. So that if you find someone to be, say, a bender of the truth, someone who seeks good outcomes rather than seeking truth, what's true and what's just, this too Paul brings up as a disqualifier from leadership in Christ's church. Holiness is another qualifier. One who's marked by covenant faithfulness and purity before the Lord. In short, Paul is saying that the elder in Christ's church must be of good reputation, both in their domestic life and personal life, and in a way that others can see and discern. And this all <clears throat> is quite overwhelming. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, personally, as an elder who has already been ordained to be an elder in Christ's church, it's overwhelming for all of us who know that, that this call is not simply for elders, but, but this is really a, a matter of Christian character, something that we're all called to. And, and it raises the question, who, who on earth can do this? Who can live a life so blameless in all these ways? Maintain a faithful union with their spouse. Raise faithful children. Not be arrogant, nor a bully, nor quick-tempered. Who, who can love what's good. Be disciplined. Who can do this? Who can do this in a way that's consistent and enduring and unimpeachable? Jesus alone. Jesus alone. See, every man in history who's ever served the church as a bishop, priest, pope, presbyter, pastor, has only ever done so imperfectly as a fellow saint along with the rest of the saints of the church, fighting against indwelling sin, 
standing as one in need of the grace and forgiveness of God. It's only Jesus in the end. The true shepherd of the sheep, the one the Apostle Peter calls the pastor and bishop of your souls. Maybe that's a different translation than what you're used to. Uh, a more st standard translation will be the shepherd and overseer, but these words are the same as for pastor and bishop. Jesus, the pastor and bishop of our souls. It's only him who ultimately meets these qualifications perfectly, enduringly, unimpeachably. And this is not just a theological point, you know, uh, about who's, who's qualified and who's not in terms of the church, but this, this point that Jesus is ultimately our shepherd, this is an immensely personal and pastoral point, right? That at the end of the day, your shepherd, whoever you are in Christ church, your shepherd is none other than Jesus himself. And all this time, you've thought that Kyle's been your chief shepherd, or whoever your pastor's been. And obviously that's true uh, um, in, in an important sense. But don't miss this more basic truth, that for all who have trusted in Christ, all who have been baptized into his own body, Jesus is your elder. He is your bishop. He is the great shepherd of the sheep, as Peter says. And this elder, Jesus, is not arrogant at all. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a bully. But is hospitable, welcoming. He welcomes the least of these. And it seems has a certain preference for them. He's a lover of the good. He's upright. And he's holy. And amidst a world of fallen elders, fallen pastors, and fallen bishops who have done horrible things, even in Jesus' name. Jesus himself stands in great contrast, even still, as the great shepherd, who himself has not broken us, but who has allowed his own body to be broken for us. The great shepherd who himself lays his life down for the sheep. Do you know this? Even as you walk through dark valleys, do you know that even there, he's with you? His rod and his staff, they comfort you. Do you know that even when your pastors mess up, and we will, that even then he is shepherding you. He's walking with you. He's committed to using even the brokenness of your church and your life to shape, to mold, and to do good for you. Will you trust him, this great shepherd of the sheep? He is pastoring you. He's laid down his life for you. And even today, as your elder, as the head of the church, he calls you to lay your life in his hands with the promise that he will care for you, he will shepherd you, and he will raise you up. Let's pray.